we study a passage of scripture today where John begins addressing some of the issues going on in the church of Ephesus. So we are going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, and I'm going to read that as we begin. Uh, clearly it's in your Bible, but it's also in your bulletin. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to hear your message today. Thank you for your living presence among us always. Our hope is for you to be honored as we delve into your word to seek to know you and ourselves more. Amen. For my doctoral program, the professors had us read a great book this week that fits incredibly well with our sermon today. I don't think that's a coincidence. By a journalist named Katherine Schultz, and it is entitled Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. The author begins the book with a typical exchange many of us might find familiar. And because of this, I'm going to ask Mark to come join me to enact a conversation we have probably had a hundred times or more in some form. This exchange was overheard between two people at Grand Central Station in 2008. You said pound cake. I didn't say pound cake. I said crumb cake. You said pound cake. Don't tell me what I said. You said pound cake. I said crumb cake. I literally walked by the crumb cake and I did not get it because you said pound cake. I said crumb cake. Well, I heard pound cake. Well, obviously you weren't listening because crumb cake doesn't even sound like pound cake. Maybe you accidentally said pound cake. I said crumb cake. <laughs> that every day in numerous languages that there are conversations that happen just like this between two people who do not want to capitulate to one another. Now the author uses this humorous and maddening exchange as the introduction about how we all like to be right and how a lot of us go through life assuming that we are basically right, basically all of the time, about basically everything. 
And often she says that's true because we're smart, competent, trustworthy people in tune with our environment. That's what keeps us alive. The experience of being right is important for our survival and our ego. Her book, though, is about being wrong, which we enjoy much less. Our errors are embarrassing and shameful because they expose us and our greatest failings. But she proposes that we are actually most wrong about what it means to be wrong. For in making the mistakes we loathe to make, it allows us to show some of our best qualities if we let them about being human. Empathy and conviction and courage and optimism. Wrongness, she says, is a vital part of how we learn and change. But that can only happen if we see our failings that way. Oftentimes we respond, she says, as if we didn't actually make a mistake, you must be wrong. <laughs> or we act as though they shouldn't have happened or we blame someone else for them. And sometimes we excel more at finding errors in others. There's a lot of emotional stake for us in being right, and sometimes our relationships suffer. I would also argue from a spiritual viewpoint that the push and pull of wanting to be anything less than right has a profound effect on the state of our souls. With loving pastoral guidance, John here is attempting to correct critical errors in thinking that the church is grappling with. It's believed that this was mostly a result of disgruntled parishioners we talked about last week. And although they're gone now from the congregation, certain false ideas that they fabricated persisted, which is what we see here. John is teaching us that the Lord doesn't expect us to be right about everything. In fact, to do so puts us in competition with God, a game we will surely lose. And it puts us at odd with, odds with one another. Rather, God expects us to believe all wisdom and truth belong to him. And John's teaching allows the church to recognize where there is wrong and gives opportunity to be in agreement with God about the most important thing in life, our, our life in Jesus. So the first error in thinking is found in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. Here, John is pointing out a common practice, people claiming to know God while disregarding how he says to live. To have access to the light, but not utilize it. But say that they are in the light is like an error of perception or simply just making life up. Either um, they truly think they are in the light when they're not, or they're insisting upon something they know isn't true while insisting that it is. Now John dispels this error by alluding to the teachings of Jesus in this, he is reminding the church that our theology has to be tied first to what God has said and continues to say instead of our senses or what we feel about something or how we want to script what other people think about us. One, one way to increase the probability of correct thinking is to examine the evidence through the spirit and then decide accordingly. As a writer, John focuses so much on the nature of God. Not 
just his attributes or actions or words, but the essence of who he is. God is light, John says. And in him, there is no darkness at all. So let's anchor ourselves for a second in this truth from scripture, the burning bush, the pillar of fire, the golden lampstands in the tabernacle, the bright rainbow of the glory of God that Ezekiel saw, the cries of the psalmist, let the light of your face shine upon us, O God. And another psalmist who says that God is clothed in light like a garment. Yahweh's presence was revealed among the people as light. In scripture, light is a metaphor, of course, for God's perfection and truth. John is saying it's impossible for you to choose to both be in the light and the dark at the same time. We can be in the dark with the light around us. We can be in the light with the darkness encroaching, but we cannot be in both simultaneously. John is refuting the bad teaching that it's possible to be close to God and yet be habitually in sin. In Leviticus, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We have deep roots in the Ten Commandments. Loving God means committing to a life that reflects God's goodness and moral nature. We know that as Christians, truth is never just saying what we believe. We must live in accordance with what we know to be true. As John says, it means choosing to walk in the light. As Jesus teaches us, when there is dissonance, the Spirit tells us when we're wrong. I was thinking about light this week. As a symbol of God's truth and holiness, we learn about God from the kind of lights that we know. Think about it. There's the bright light of the interrogator when our deeds need to be revealed for what they are. There is the soft glow of the sunset when there's peace and we know God's beauty. There are headlights on a murky night when we are able to see only what is right in front of our car. There is the light of the fire when it is cold and we need the warmth. There's a comforting nightlight when we're scared and alone. There's the burst of a sunrise as it comes into full light, bringing the hope of a new day. They're the lights of the stars that shine with the power of God. Then there's the lightning flash of brilliance we get when understanding and wisdom is revealed to us. We see God in what we know to be true about physical light. And spiritually, John says, Jesus' light chases away the darkness, showing us the various shades and wavelengths of his presence and truth. And one day we will know the blazing glory of the king in a place that needs no other illumination, scripture says, except for his presence. And so until that time, let us not deceive ourselves, as John says, about who God is or what is required of us in the life Jesus came to give. The one who said, I am the light of the world. The second error of thinking comes in verses 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
Part of being human means that we have a propensity to lie, both to ourselves and others. In this case, if we say that we don't sin, we are making God a liar because he declared all of us sinful by sending Jesus into the world to die for our brokenness and wrongdoing. If there's no such thing as sin, the cross was unnecessary. So by that logic, there is no in-between. Either we are lying or God is. I found a funny story this week about Charles Spurgeon, who was a very popular preacher in London in the Victorian era that I dearly hope is true. A gentleman that Spurgeon knew had insisted that he was without sin, completely virtuous. Intrigued, Spurgeon invited the man to his home for dinner and listened over the meal as the man repeated his sinless claims over and over. Suddenly, maybe because he couldn't take it anymore, the renowned pastor reached for a glass of water and threw it in the man's face. It caught his guest completely by surprise, and he was very mad and expressed anger in a way no Christian should. <laughs> Spurgeon waited till the outburst was over and then quietly said, Ah, you see, the old man is within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. <laughs> In the early church, part of the heresy that some people were claiming was that they were more intellectually advanced than the gospel. And in their superiority, it was as though they thought themselves to be further along the path of knowledge than Christians and that sin ceased to matter if it was a real thing at all. Not much had changed by the time Spurgeon came along or has changed in ours. Those who think that they have evolved past the idea are really confused about the reality of God's life. To talk about sin as an idea rooted in the archaic thinking of a church that is irrelevant, that sin is made up by those who want to keep people from being who they really want to be is very dangerous. But this rebellion has always happened and has serious ramifications for the world. And we see it in the form of greed and sexual promiscuity and murder and gossip and rage and broken relationships and on and on. If we believe that there is no sin leaving us free to do whatever we want by whatever moral code we think is best, we are going to get to a place where we wonder what went terribly wrong in our lives. So many people today who reject God are flummoxed by the pain and the darkness around us. And they think that we need education and more or less government intervention and better parenting and less screen time. And those things may be true and they may help, but they are not the ultimate solution. How can we not see that our individual and communal and institutional choices perpetuate sin? How can't we see that seeking endless pleasure harm us? That our selfishness and our overconsumption and our complaining and our hate are literally killing us. We think that we can talk one way and live another as if our character and our choices aren't connected and then we are resentful and ticked off when life goes off the rails. Now, I don't like to think of myself as a sinner you probably don't either, but that is what we are. So what does it mean 
if we say we don't sin, does it mean that we're not responsible for the wrong we do or the good we don't do? Does it mean that there's no harm we perpetuate because we're only good or at least we're better than those that we think are worse than we are? Perhaps it just means really that we have enormous blind spots that we refuse to acknowledge and we don't want to change. That the very act of denying sin means that God cannot bring the freedom that we most need. Sin refracts the light Jesus came to to give in a way that is distorted and unreal. And John is using very strong language so that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. The closer we get to God, the more we'll see his perfection, the more we will know our own sin. So let us always come with open hearts to what it is God would say. The last error is not stated, but there are two thoughts here. The first is, I can save myself. We might know it by the bumper sticker we see around town that says, born right the first time. The second thought is more heartbreaking, which says God won't or can't forgive me. They sound different, but they're related. The first says, I don't need God. The other says, I'm not worthy to be saved. But both have roots in the self instead of trusting in the Savior who came to help us. So we know this must be wrong thinking of the church because listen to what John says three times. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, 1 and 2, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen? Notice John's pastoral heart. Very advanced in years, he calls them little children. Now, we know sometimes that old people, I count myself among old sometimes, can be cranky, dismissive, impatient with the failings of the younger generations. But in John's words, we don't hear that. We hear tenderness for those who are struggling to understand what is true, for those who are struggling to understand who God is. John's hope is that they won't be entangled in the sin that is so pervasive, that they would find the narrow way that Jesus brings What turns around our wrong thinking is humility. Admitting we don't know everything. What turns around our wrong thinking is listening to other people. Schultz says it's trying to see what we cannot see. John is preaching that the way out of denial, the way out of entrenchment in our bad patterns, the way out of the guilt that we can't rid ourselves of is confession. What helps us to draw close to God is recognizing our fallibility and our true need for the Lord. It's being honest about our fears and our shame, asking Jesus to help us see our lives as he sees them. Fully loved, joyfully welcomed, 
as part of his family. John mentions how faithful God is. There is never a time that we go to him in our guilt and our sin that he condemns us and turns us away ever. He will lovingly take our sins and cleanse us and put our souls right in him. Jesus takes not just the wrongs that we do, but the wrongs done to us by our imperfect neighbors and loved ones, helping us to be able to find forgiveness and peace within. Jesus has a triple role here, you will see from the scripture. He is our advocate, which is translated as paraclete or comforter. You might know it from the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But the word is most notably found, uh, I'm sorry, it's most notably found in the Beatitudes. Its most common meaning, though, is to call someone to our side so that they can be used as a helper and a counselor to be a witness in someone's favor. Remember Hebrews. Jesus is the one who lives to make intercession for the people who appears in the presence of God for us. John is purposely tying our forgiveness to the physical body of the Lord, reminding the church that no matter what anyone else says, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, fully able to make us righteous in his eyes. So I invite you now to take a moment with Jesus to examine the push and the pull that being wrong has had on your soul. I invite you to show the Lord anything you have been hiding. To ask if there is something that you have been lying to yourself about. Is there anything in your life that has been cloaked in darkness that you are ashamed of? Where has pride been in evidence in you? Ask the Lord to shine his light. His presence is with you. Hear the words of the Savior. You are my child. I forgive you. Repent and sin no more. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.